This is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. After Israel's victory in the 1948 war, the mood among Arab nations surrounding Israel was one of vengeance. The loss had been a humiliation, and Israel's enemies needed to regroup. By way of exerting influence in the Middle East, the Russians supplied Egypt in particular with formidable arms. This habit of supplying arms to various and changeable allies for the purpose of geopolitical influence continues today, obviously. The first mission of the United Nations peacekeepers was to send peacekeepers, or blue helmets, or as they're called in Israel, smurfs, to Israel to watch over the border areas after the uneasy ceasefire in 1948. Their white UN jeeps remain a common sight in Jerusalem, in the Golan Heights, and on the Lebanese border today. Tensions between Israel and Egypt in the 1950s were particularly tense. In 1950, Egypt closed the strategic Straits of Tehran, a much-needed shipping route for Israel that lies between the Saudi and Sinai peninsulas. In 1956, Gamal Abdel Nasser Hussein, the second president of Egypt, closed the Suez Canal to Israel. The Suez Canal is 120 miles long and connects the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. This does not sound particularly exciting until you realize that the canal shaved 5,500 miles off the usual trade route from Europe to East Asia, making unnecessary the journey over and around the African continent. A whole new world of efficient shipping trade was made possible. Built between 1859 and 1869 by the Suez Canal Company, the canal was jointly owned by French, Egyptian, and Ottoman interests, which mostly means a certain Said Pasha, an Ottoman statesman and politician. In 1869, plans were made to create a colossal neoclassical sculpture that would also serve as a lighthouse. Designed by French sculptor Frédéric Auguste Bartholdi, the sculpture would be of a robed woman holding a torch and was to be called Egypt, carrying the light to Asia. Bartholdi's bid was not accepted. In 1886, the same statue, now called Liberty Enlightening the World, was inaugurated in New York Harbor. The Suez Canal, meant to be an international shipping waterway, was often a problematic point of contention between the Egyptians, the French, and the British. In 1967, Nasser closed the Suez Canal to all shipping, in part by scuttling ships and stopping the dredging that was needed for its maintenance. This closure rocked the world economy and resulted in the stranding of a motley collection of 15 shipping vessels hailing variously from the UK, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, France, Sweden, the United States, and West Germany. In the Middle East, saber-rattling is a kabuki performance, a battle of words, which occurs cyclically and is meant to assert leadership badassery by way of assuring the public that their enemy will not just be defeated, but humiliated and destroyed, annihilated on a biblical scale, and that their blood would flow into the sea. I mean, it's really dramatic. In his book, Like Dreamers, 
Yossi Klein Halevi writes of the anti-Israel sentiment brewing all around Israel in the months and weeks preceding the Six-Day War of 1967. Quote, On the streets of Cairo, demonstrators waved banners of skulls and crossbones and chanted, We want war! Caricatures in the Arab world's government newspapers fantasized about the coming victory. An Egyptian cartoon showed a hooked-nosed Jew being strangled by a Star of David. An Assyrian cartoon showed a pile of skulls in the smoking ruins of Tel Aviv. One ad in an Egyptian newspaper depicted a hand plunging a knife into the Star of David and was signed, Nile Oils and Soaps Company. End quote. This was some serious saber-rattling, and it was backed by sobering evidence. Israeli intelligence indicated that Egypt, Jordan, and Syria were well-armed and massing on Israel's borders. Israelis were frightened, the army was on high alert, and the reserves were put on notice. The numbers of soldiers Israel could mobilize amounted to about 250,000, but Arab forces combined had double the amount of soldiers and three times as many planes and tanks. Israel would need a serious miracle to survive. In Tel Aviv, plans were drawn up to use parks and other public places to dig deep pits for the mass graves of the inevitable casualties of a devastating war. All reserves were called up. For Israelis, spring 1967 was a terrifying time. In the early days of spring 1967, there was a definite feeling of doomsday approaching. The Syrians in the north, on the Golan Heights, were moving more and more troops, artillery, and armor. And there were more incidents of sporadic shooting into Israeli towns and kibbutzim and the valley below Golan. The Jordanians, with their well-entrenched and highly trained by British officers, army, lobbed mortars into Israeli-controlled West Jerusalem. But it was Nasser's huge Egyptian army that posed the greatest danger to our existence. They were moving huge forces into the Sinai Peninsula, reinforcing their positions in the Gaza Strip, and were supplied by untold amounts of armor, planes, and munitions by the Russians, who had their own geopolitical ambitions. All border kibbutzim were giving instructions to reinforce their existing bunkers and to dig trenches connecting our living quarters to the children's area, the dining hall, the chicken coops, and other work areas. Volunteers arrived from the cities and other kibbutzim, and it seemed like kibbutzikim was one large army post, since our fields were next to the Gaza Strip, which was Egyptian territory, we were very vulnerable. It was made clear to us how vulnerable we were when one night, four of our tractors were blown up in the fields. Whoa, trenches? Explosions? How are you not absolutely terrified? Gidon and I had just seen the Sam Mendes film 1917, set in the trenches of the First World War. I couldn't comprehend that Kibbutz Zikim, quiet, rural and peaceful as it is today, was actually in a war zone with trenches. 
I couldn't imagine what it must have been like to live with such big threats so nearby. But then everybody in Israel has a bomb shelter of one kind or another. Beginning in 1951, Israel began instituting a civil defense system. Residential buildings are required to have large bomb shelters on the basement level, spacious enough to pack in everybody in the building all at once. The shelter in the building where Gidon and I live is quite large, or it would be if it were not illegally crammed with the extra stuff of ours and our neighbors, like suitcases, boxes of clothing, and scuba gear. The steel door to get into the shelter has a big iron handle that must be turned just so, and bars that lock the door from the inside. There is a fresh air ventilation system, a toilet, a sink, and even two shower heads. Israelis are accustomed to meeting each other on stairwells and in shelters in various stages of undress. Newer buildings have safe rooms or mamads, which have reinforced steel doors, reinforced concrete walls, one steel shuttered window, and a ventilation system. Israelis being Israelis, these rooms often double as offices, guest rooms, or playrooms. Bomb shelters come in all manner of styles here. In the southern part of Israel, bordering Gaza, the bus stops are cupped by reinforced concrete, creating odd hunched shapes along the road. Many kibbutzim have underground bunkers that initially look like either a huge pile of rocks or a badly designed concrete something or other with a loudspeaker attached to the top. The Dizengoff Center in Tel Aviv, a large shopping mall, has a nuclear bomb shelter in its bowels with enough room to shelter more than 2,000 people. There are many such cavernous shelters underneath public buildings in Israel, reflecting the collective ability of a society to acclimate to war as a part of everyday life. We all received emergency call-up codes, and by the 15th of May, we said goodbye to our families. I reported to my northern unit in Tzfat, just north of Tiberias. After receiving my army gear and meeting my reserve unit squad and company, we set out in a long convoy to the Syrian border in the north. Finally, we arrived at our assigned area. It was just north of Tiberias, near Lake Kineret where a few hundred yards away, the underground pumps were supplying water to the rest of the country. Our assignment was clear, to prevent the Syrians from capturing this very vital area of the pumping station. As soon as we arrived, we were given picks, shovels, and sledgehammers, and for the next two weeks, dug trenches, dugouts, and artillery launch positions. In this terrain, we dug through a bit of earth, but a lot of hard black basalt rocks. As a squad commander, I was overseeing this task, and every time I thought that we finally finished digging, another officer would arrive and make changes, so we would have to continue to dig and dig again. Our hands were so covered with blisters that if the Syrians had attacked us that moment we would hardly be able to squeeze the triggers of our machine guns or rifles to defend ourselves. While we were digging in and strengthening our positions in the north, along the border with Jordan and Syria up to the Hermon Mountains, Egypt expelled the UN from the Gaza Strip and closed the Tyrant Straits near the Red Sea. 
effectively shutting Israel off from any help and supplies it might get from the south. Egyptian forces were advancing in Sinai toward our border. It felt very, very claustrophobic and threatening, and it was. Then, in the early morning of June 6, 1967, we heard the news that the Israeli Air Force had taken to the sky and was attacking the huge convoys of Egyptian forces in Sinai. They were also going for the Egyptian airfields in Egypt itself and rendering them unusable. One can only imagine the tremendous relief and joy we all felt on hearing this news. This preemptive strike was most definitely the right way to go. Otherwise, the very existence of the state of Israel was in danger. The Air Force also attacked in the north and together with the armored division of the infantry made quick progress against the Syrian. Where my unit was dug in, we held our positions, expecting an imminent attack. The next night, we heard the rumbling of the tanks and other armed vehicles and thought, okay, here they come. We were as ready as we could be, but nothing happened. At 5 a.m., just as the first light came in the eastern sky, we were commanded to get out of our trenches and start to advance down towards the Syrian border, which was just a few hundred yards away, across the Jordan River. Turns out, the noise we heard was the Syrians' retreat from the valley below us. When we arrived at the Jordan River, the water was really turbulent. Some ropes were stretched across the river and we were ordered to cross. This was a disaster. We had never crossed or practiced crossing a river. We were to hold our weapons out of the water's reach, but that was next to impossible. Some of us not only fell and lost our weapons, but also our shoes or trousers. Tragically, a number of soldiers drowned. Had the Syrians just set up one or two machine gun nests across the river, they could have finished us all off with ease. Luckily for us, they had made an hurried retreat, both the army and the villagers. And we entered the village and army camp encountering no opposition at all. In the army camp, we found cases and cases of arms, boxes of ammunitions, still unopened and even heavier weapons. It was amazing. Some, not very many, of our soldiers tried to do some looting, but were quickly stopped and even court-martialed. I found myself a pair of army pants since mine had floated away in the waters of the Jordan River. To think back today that I and many others crossed the Jordan River in our underpants isn't just funny, it's embarrassing. There were some Syrian strongholds that did fight back, and in a couple of instances caused us heavy losses. But, on the whole, it was not a difficult battle, and we made it all the way to Kunetra, the biggest town on the Golan Heights. It became quite clear that this area was essentially a very large army camp, and the civilian population was mainly in the far north, and almost all Druze Arabs, not part of the Syrian entrenchment. The fighting ended and it turned out to be the biggest victory we had ever won against three Arab armies. My thinking at the time was, 
well, now that we have captured so much of their territory, hopefully we can use this as a negotiating tool and once and for all make peace and become an integral part of the Middle East. How naive and foolish I was looking back at the past 50 or so years. The war was a rout. Israel not only destroyed the Egyptian Air Force as it sat on the ground, but also controlled the key territories of the Golan Heights and Sinai, and importantly, reunited Jerusalem. Israel also took control of Gaza from Egypt and began its occupation of the West Bank. Israelis were exhilarated and relieved. The war, it seemed to them, was an acid test, do or die. When I asked Gidon about whether he was frightened during this time, he didn't recall fear, just implacable focus. This determined stance of defending a country despite a clear imbalance in arms was fueled by innovation, courage, and desperation, too. There was nowhere for Israelis to go except the clear blue sea, a place that their enemies repeatedly and graphically threatened them with. But it was not to be. Not this time. Once more, the table was already set for the next confrontation between Israel and its neighbors. Gidon came back home from Army Reserve duty, and a few weeks later, he, Naomi, and Maya visited the United States to spend time with Naomi's family in Northern California. Everything was changing. With the war over, the map of Israel had been fundamentally redrawn. Israel had captured Sinai, the Golan Heights, Jerusalem, and the West Bank up to the Jordan River. Israelis celebrated another unlikely victory. They were euphoric. It had been a very close call. For Gidon, the Six-Day War reaffirmed his belief in Israel and in his life there. But even the fragrant loquat and mango orchards of Kibbutz Zukim could not hide the fact that the stage was set for future conflict, not just for Israel, but for Gidon, Naomi, Maya, and now a son, Yanai, born less than a year after the end of the war in May 1968. In 1970, E.M. Forster died, the Aswan Dam was completed in Egypt, and I started the first grade in a tiny rural town in Northern California. The Who performed Tommy at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York with one Met fan suggesting they change their name for the day to The Whom. The Ford Pinto was introduced and Monday Night Football debuted on ABC. Egyptian President Gamel Abdel Nasser died and was replaced by Anwar Sadat. Joni Mitchell's big yellow taxi was a hit. And late in June of that summer, Guidon was only days away from the most painful event of his life. It was just afternoon on a Thursday in June in 1970. I remember it perfectly. It was hot and sticky as Yanai, who was two then, and I climbed up the Judean hills toward Jerusalem. We could feel the cooler air as we got closer to Jerusalem. Yanai's red curly hair blew in the wind as he sat in his booster seat in the back of our kibbutz owned car. We were headed to a visit with my sweet five-year-old daughter, Maya, and her mom, Nomi, who have been living in Jerusalem for most of the year with her old boyfriend who had arrived from America.
The marriage between Gidon and Naomi fell apart incrementally, but dramatically. The couple had split up and hammered out their own unusual extra-legal custody agreement. Gidon would keep Yanai and stay on Kibbutz Zikin, while Naomi kept Maya and lived in Jerusalem with an American boyfriend with whom she had reignited romantic ties and by whom she had become pregnant. It was a fragile peace and a precarious situation, doomed to fail spectacularly. As I was driving, Yanai had a constant flow of questions. Dad, why are those cows just sitting there? What is that big green machine doing? Where are those goats going? And so on. I tried as best as I could to give him some explanations and not to discourage his inquisitiveness. I thought it was healthy and good to ask questions, not having done so myself when I was a child. Traveling by way of the back road to Jerusalem is a shortcut and a great deal more interesting. We passed by a number of small Jewish settlements that were within the Green Line in pre-1967 Israel, one of them being Tzur Hadas, where Nomi's identical twin red-headed sister, Paula, resided with her husband. Sometimes on our way to Jerusalem, we stopped by for a short visit, a cookie, a cup of tea, and a short chat. We were good friends. Today, however, it was a bit later than usual, and I was anxious to see and spend time with Maya, and I'm sure Nomi was looking forward to spending time with Lilianai. Since Nomi and I had parted ways, we made an arrangement that once a month I came to Jerusalem with Yanai and spent about three hours with Maya, while Nomi did the same with Yanai, of course. We would go for a walk to the nearest park, talk about past good times we had together and how much I missed her. Maya would tell me about her preschool daycare center, what she did there, her friends, and other activities, but we do not talk about what was going between her mother and I. Foolishly, in retrospect, I did not ask her about her family life in Jerusalem. I love this child of mine, with her long blondish hair, petite body, lovely blue-green eyes, and quick intelligence. She was so lovely that it broke my heart that her mother and I had created this ridiculous situation. Our three hours together were up, and slowly, hand in hand, Maya and I walked back to Nomi's apartment. This time, by previous arrangement, I was for the first time ever leaving Yanai at Nomi's for the weekend, a payback arrangement for when Nomi, three weeks earlier, had left Maya with me at the kibbutz for the weekend, which was, of course, wonderful for all of us. I have lovely photos to this day of how we spent time playing in the sand dunes at Zikim. Returning with Maya to Nomi's apartment, I picked up on some nebulous heightened tension there, but put it up to the hubbub of all of us being in such a small apartment and Nomi's being eight months pregnant. While eating a bowl of soup that Nomi kindly provided me with, I remember being struck by a sudden appearance of a buyer for the VW Bug and was told that because of their growing family, Nomi and her boyfriend were selling their car to buy something larger. It made sense to me. Nothing more was said about it. I hugged Maya and Yanai goodbye and told them that I would be back, of course, on Sunday to pick up Yanai and take him back to Zikim. With somewhat of a heavy heart, I returned to Kibbutz Zikim, where another kibbutz member was anxiously waiting for the car. I had mixed feelings about my weekend off. 
on the one hand, it was nice to be free for the first time in a year. But on the other hand, I felt a bit lonely and forlorn without either of my kids. Gidon returned to Kibbutz Zikim and set to making weekend plans for himself. On his list was a visit with an intelligent, outgoing American brunette named Susan, with whom he had been friends for some time. To Gidon's great disappointment, Susan begged off. Instead, Gidon went to Kibbutz Hazarea, where he met with old friends, made new ones, enjoyed the food in the dining hall, and went on a hike in the forest. But he was lonely. He couldn't wait for the weekend to be over. I remember that drive back to Nomi's house. I had an uneasy feeling and I didn't know why. Even after I parked the car and entered the building, my foreboding grew. It seemed quieter than usual. Was everyone at work and the kids already in school? Why didn't I hear Yanai? I came to Nomi's apartment and noticed a note on the door in an envelope addressed to me. With shaking hands and a feeling of dread, I opened it and read the short note. We have gone to America. My children were gone. I was in shock. There was no phone number and no address, nothing. My hands shaking. I noticed something rattling in the envelope, the key to the apartment. I opened the door. The place that I had visited only a day before was totally empty. Not a soul, no furniture, no pictures, nothing. The apartment was totally bare, down to the walls. I slumped down on the floor and remembered how devastated I had been so many years ago, when after praying day after day for weeks on end to dear God to please bring my dad back, and it did not happen. My mother had been unable to comfort me or hug me or do anything to help me overcome my anguish. And now, here again, I found myself lost, abandoned, all on my own. It was so painful that even today, 49 years later, I can hardly describe how I felt at that terrible moment. How could Nomi have done such a thing? This must have been planned meticulously, I thought, as I stared around the empty apartment. How could I not have seen this coming? I cried and banged my head against the wall. I slumped down and tears ran down my cheeks. At that very moment, I had no idea what to do or how to go on living. What happened that day in Jerusalem in 1970 couldn't have happened to a person less emotionally equipped to deal with it. Any parent would be devastated by the chain of events that Gidon experienced, and in his pain and panic, he found himself triggered in the parlance of today, once more feeling the bottomless insecurity, loss, and abandonment that he had experienced throughout his childhood. It made perfect, terrible sense that the most painful story in Gidon's life was a blow that stripped him of his agency, worth, and purpose. 
I could only imagine the deep sense of betrayal that Gidon must have felt. The anger, disbelief, humiliation. On top of that, the wrenching feeling of being so starkly alone in Israel after having built a family. But the family Gidon and Naomi had built a bit hastily was vulnerable to such things given the shaky emotional foundations of the marriage. While Israel was Gidon's long-dreamed home, a place that would be unthinkable to leave, for Naomi it had been but a chapter in her life. The relationship had ended, and Naomi felt trapped in Israel. She wanted to go back home to California. As the reality set in, I realized that this must have been her plan, a long time in the making, orchestrated meticulously without Maya's knowledge. Now anger, disbelief, and anguish, and the terrible loneliness gripped me. Since the time I had lost my father, I had not felt like this. What could I do? Slowly I got my brain to work again and knocked on some neighbor's doors. I was told that yes, Nomi and her boyfriend had moved out yesterday afternoon, and as far as they knew, were heading for the airport with a half a dozen or so suitcases. Gidon returned to Kibbutz Zikim and told the stunned Kibbutz members what had happened. There were a lot of questions. He found out that Naomi, her boyfriend, and the kids had indeed boarded an American Airlines flight the previous Saturday evening, using Gidon's forged signature on the document allowing Inai to be added to his mother's passport. Gidon recalled that a few weeks prior he could not find his ID card, but then it mysteriously showed up again in an unmarked envelope. Had Naomi stolen it to forge his signature? His sense of betrayal deepened as Gidon thought back over his interactions with Naomi in the previous weeks and months. What happened had been meticulously planned. It wasn't a heat-of-the-moment kind of thing. What happened here? Why did Naomi do such a thing? I went over it in my mind. I tried to put myself in her shoes. Why didn't this couple go to a social worker or hire a mediator if things were so bad between them regarding the custody of the children? Wasn't there something that could have been done differently? Of course there was. There always is. But that's not really how life goes, is it? I have my own regrets, my own bad decisions, so many things I should or could have done differently. myself, what shall I do? Where to start? What can be done? How will I find them? I called Interpol, but they told me that because Nomi's was the kid's mother, there was nothing they could do. I had a meeting with the kibbutz secretariat, and the kibbutz fully supported me and gave me money for the flight to the United States with their blessing and a great deal of hope that I would find Maya and Yanai and manage to bring them back to kibbutz Zikim. It was 48 years later, on a warm, dusky Israeli evening, the kind that made me love living here. All around were the sights and sounds of celebration, children playing, jugglers performing, fragrant food being served, and festive music playing. And the stars were just beginning to appear, one by one, in the mauve sky. Egyptian fruit bats swooped overhead. There was a family wedding on Kibbutz Mishmar HaEmek. Noi... Gidon and Naomi's grandson, was getting married. 
Naomi was 73 years old by that time. She still had the red hair, now tinged with gray, and the petite frame that she had almost 50 years ago. We were seated at the same table. This wasn't the first time Gidon and Naomi had seen each other since those terrible days. Far from it. They treated each other with a slightly forced cordiality, but not much more than that. I harbored a crazy hope that maybe this book would heal the two, just a little tiny bit. Naomi was polite, but understandably wary of me. She didn't know me from Adam, and she knew I had been writing a book about Gidon's life. Two strikes. I didn't know what to say to her. I just wanted to understand. I wanted to tell Naomi to reassure her that Gidon's book would be no worshipful hagiography, nor an indictment of her. But this was not the time for a conversation like that. I would never understand the landscape of her relationship with Gidon. That was something between them. Naomi didn't know it, but I understood her on a certain level. I, too, had made choices and mistakes that caused a lot of hurt. I understood following your heart, and I sure as hell understood regret. I know there are two sides to every story, but this is the story that I'm telling now. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah, Eliran, for being the voice of young Gidon.